On today's show, should Democratic candidates work with Trump? A race for governor between a Tesla and a Prius? Cesar Chavez's immigration views? And so much more. This is Standing Up War History. Ask not what your country can do for you. With your host, Issa Sheik. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. At this defining moment, change has come to America. When you open your heart to patriotism, there is no room for prejudice. We're going to talk now about California's coffee chaos. This from the Cato Institute. A judge in Los Angeles ruled Wednesday that Starbucks, Pete's, and many other retailers face potentially massive liability under California laws for not warning consumers that naturally occurring substances in roasted coffee beans can cause cancer, at least to lamb animals. Absurd? Outrageous? Yeah. But the scorn and outrage should not be directed at the judge, but at the law whose terms he was required to enforce. Prop 65, adopted by state voters through the initiative process in 1986 as well as the lawyer-swayed California political system that still, more than 30 years later, is unwilling to address the measure's laws. Acrylamide is a naturally occurring substance formed when many foods are browned, or otherwise subjected to high heat, including in many cases grilled burgers, fried chicken, bread, almonds, and potato chips. Like many other constituents of everyday life, it appears to cause cancer in some animals at high dosages, and that brings it under the terms of Prop 65, which has already led to a proliferation of warnings on and around thousands of common goods and services in California, from office furniture to hotel corridors to garages. Almost everyone agrees by now that the over-proliferation of warnings make it, makes it less likely that consumers will pay attention to those few warnings that actually flag notable risks. Although on paper, the law provides exemptions for some risks that are not significant. These have been hard for defendants to use in practice, and the coffee vendors were not saved by the argument that Java overall provides scientifically uncertain net health benefits, which may even perhaps include net anti-cancer benefits that outweigh the also scientifically uncertain risks. What happens next? As the Post reports, in addition to the warning signs likely to result from the lawsuit, the Council for Education and Research on Toxics which brought the lawsuit, has asked for fines as much as 2500 for every person exposed to the chemicals since 2002, potentially opening the door to massive settlements. And the financial shakedown value here is, is far from incidental. It's the very motor that keeps the law going. Uh, the article continues, The California political system, which listens carefully to the small industry of nonprofits and attorneys that make a living by filing suits, has been unwilling to do more than nibble around the brown edges of Prop 65's famous irrationalities. The warnings of potentially chaotic results like today's, like Prop 65 warnings in general, have gone ignored. Overlawyered has covered in detail both Prop 65 in general, including its use against scented candles, matches, brass knobs, light bulbs, playground sand, and billiard cue chalk, and acrylamide in particular. The cost of a Prius starts for around $20,000, and there's approximately $4 million on the road. It's a boring car, and it's not for fun. A Tesla comes cheapest at $80,000, and there's approximately 120000 on the road. We're not talking about cars here. We're talking about voters. 
Antonio Villaraigosa, the former mayor of Los Angeles and a longtime Democrat, would break the record of white male governors. He's Mexican. Uh, I want to be uh, the governor of the entire state. Gavin Newsom, longtime lefty, who was San Francisco's mayor, had some pretty crazy ideas turning city staff into litter cops. Stylistically, I tend to step up and step in, uh, not as passive in certain issues. Uh, the knock on me or the thing people liked was I was the 12th member of the Board of Supervisors when I was mayor of San Francisco in terms of my legislative agenda. I tend to want to lead on reforms, uh, not wait for them to land on my desk. He's the favorite of elite HBO hosts for president. Who should the Democrats run in 2020? Gavin Newsom. According to Villaraigosa, Dems need to focus less on Tesla owners uh, and more on the working class and poor. Nusa basically represents them and the ideas that they hold. Villaraigosa has attacked Nusa repeatedly over elitism. Here's this from January of this year in the LA Times. Antonio Villaraigosa called a gubernatorial rival Gavin Newsom on Friday to drop a lawsuit challenging the rights of San Francisco voters to set height limits on new buildings along the city's scenic waterfront. Newsom, former mayor of San Francisco, chairs the State Lands Commission, which filed the complaint. The lawsuit seeks to nullify the Sierra Club's Proposition B, passed by 59% of the city's voters in 2014. It requires voter approval for any new waterfront building that exceeds the city city's height limit. The State Lands Commission's legal argument that the people of San Francisco are too uneducated on ballot issues to make a decision about high limits is both elitist and condescending, said Villaraigosa, a former Los Angeles mayor. Unlike Newsom, he said, I trust the voters of San Francisco's decision to protect their own waterfront. But let's make no mistake. Neither man is moderate in any sense. And both have had affairs during their time as mayors. For California Democrats, a choice between Teslas and Priuses. And now to two 70-year-old white guys fighting on Twitter and in speeches. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the ruckus in the hospice, the brawl on Geritol, the melee over the jello tray, the headlock on Matlock. This is a 12-round bout between 74-year-old Donald J. Trump and 78-year-old Joseph R. Biden fought at the catchweight of 245 pounds. Biden has had to drink four insurers per day to make weight. Bernie Sanders was invited, but there was not enough pudding in the world to ensure that he reached catchweight. Let's get ready to stumble, and here we go. The President of the United States tweeted the following. Crazy Joe Biden is trying to act like a tough guy. Actually, he is weak, both mentally and physically, and yet he threatens me for the second time with physical assault. He doesn't know me, but he would go down fast and hard, crying all the way. Don't threaten people, Joe! Exclamation point. That followed Joe Biden's remarks at this speech. When a guy who ended up becoming a national leader said, I can grab a woman anywhere and she likes it, and then said, I, I made a mistake. They asked me, would I like to debate this gentleman? That wasn't the first time. During the campaign, he also said this. What kind of leader awakens at 3 o'clock in the morning and tweets? And this. His cynicism is unbounded. His lack of empathy and compassion can be summed up in the phrase I suspect he's most proud of having made famous. You're fired. I mean, really, I'm not joking. Think about that. 
Think about that. Think about everything you learned as a child. No matter where you were raised, how can there be pleasure in saying you're fired? He's trying to tell us he cares about the middle class. Give me a break. That's a bunch of malarkey. And of course, he did threaten violence at that time as well. And here's how Trump responded at that time. Our leaders are stupid people. They're stupid people. I'm telling you. Obama, all this guy does is campaign for Hillary, who we can't stand. And if you see now why, you know, I'm trying to figure out why is he backing her over Biden? Did you see where Biden wants to take me to the back of the barn? Me. He wants it. I'd love that. I'd love that. Mr. Tough Guy. You know, he's Mr. Tough Guy. You know when he's Mr. Tough Guy? When he's standing behind a microphone by himself. That's when he's... He wants to bring me to the back of the barn. Oh, some things in life you could really love doing. And by the way, if I said that, they'd say, he's violent. How could he have done that? How could he have... The headlines about the two politicians' imaginary fight remind me of Joe Biden's famous ability to gaff. Dropped everything at the dump. It all worked out. And by the way, I got a second load. Guys coming. Anybody wants to help me unload? When he acknowledged a wheelchair-bound man. Uh, uh, Chuck Graham, state senator's here. Chuck, stand up. Chuck, let me see you. Oh, God love you. What am I talking about? I tell you what, you're making everybody else stand up, though, pal. Thank you very, very much. I tell you what, stand up for Chuck. As vice president, he might have revealed his ambitions. My mother believed and my father believed that if I wanted to be president of the United States, I could be, I could be vice president. My mother and father believed. Cat has three letters, C-A-T-S. Look, John's last minute economic plan does nothing to tackle the number one job facing the middle class. And it happens to be, as Barack says, a three letter word, jobs, J-O-B-S, jobs. We all love Dr. Pepper. And thank you, uh, Dr. Pepper, and thank you, Chancellor, or Dr. Paper, and thank you, Chancellor. She's still alive, Joe. Tishik knows a lot about it. His mom uh, lived in, uh, in Long Island for 10 years or so. Uh, God rest her soul. And uh, um, although she's, wait, your mom's still, your mom's still alive as your dad passed. God bless her soul. <laughs> I got to get this straight. President Obama was patriotic. A man who will be the next president of the United States, Barack America. What if Joe Biden worked in Donald Trump's administration? I imagine he'd have some choice words. You're fired. For now, we can only imagine the presidential debate stage in 2020 turning into WWE. Food trucks have swept the nation over the past decade, attracting no shortage of attention from consumers, popular culture, and alas, zealous local regulators. The owners of the trucks have embraced technology, connecting directly with their customer bases over social media and proving responsive to local tastes. Recently, a new study titled Food Truck Nation was released by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Foundation. The product of a year's work, it follows the model of the World Bank's Doing Business Indicators, which look at global economic freedom, and applies it to food trucks in jurisdictions across the United States. The study focuses in on three regulatory components, obtaining permits and licenses, 
complying with restrictions, and operating a food truck. Portland and Denver ranked highest for ease of doing business, with Boston at the bottom of the list. As ground-up innovators in the industry, trucks have brought a range of food options where they were hard to find before, and demand is strong, driving a boom. The number of food trucks has been growing quickly at a 7.9% rate from 2011 to 2016, and the revenues have grown at an even higher rate, rising from $650 million in 2012 to a projected $2.7 billion in 2017. This growth, though, is expected to slow to 0.4% over the next few years, largely due to the barriers to entry that food truck owners face. The high cost of entry means that many people cannot take this first step into the food business, food business, even if they are otherwise qualified and ready to work. Caroline Colley, the president of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Foundation, points out that despite the popularity of trucks, there is little awareness of how costly it is to start one. She tells National Review, quote, What we found was an unbelievable amount of nonsensical regulation and make work that is an impediment for someone with not a lot of cash. Setting examples such as the requirement in some jurisdictions that cashiers pay fees and be licensed to engage in cooking tasks. The average cost of starting a food truck includes $28,276 just in permits, fees, and compliance and 45 government-mandated procedures that take an average of 37 days to complete. These requirements are often duplicative, with multiple local government offices demanding versions of the same document. Sometimes it is not clear exactly which permits need to be taken out, as many jurisdictions do a poor job of laying out the requirements. Moreover, because the overall cost is the sum of countless smaller regulations that have been grandfathered in from earlier types of businesses, cities and states are often unaware of the burdens that they impose. It's incredibly important that these procedures are not simply health and safety matters, which are necessary. In Boston, for instance, truck owners must not only pledge to stay at least 100 feet away from a competition, but they must purchase and install a GPS tracker from a particular city-preferred firm for about $400, pay the monthly charge for it, and submit to having their movements monitored. In Chicago, if a food truck is within 200 feet of a brick-and-mortar competitor, which includes even vending machines, the owner faces a fine of up to $2,000. If your full-time job is to run your first food truck, going through over 30 days of bureaucracy in order to add a second can serve as an insurmountable opportunity cost, atop the cost of the fees themselves. There is no way that these restrictions are anything but naked cronyism for incumbent businesses whose owners do not want to deal with the competition. But since even with the high cost of entry, food trucks are still a less costly business to get into than opening a restaurant, this often works out as favoritism for the established and discrimination against the less well-off and connected. As the report states, food trucks owners are a diverse crowd of rich and poor and represent all races and genders. In Chicago, roughly 80% of local food trucks are minority-owned small businesses. Owning and operating a food truck does not necessarily require an expensive degree, family connections, or English language skills. Worst of all, these requirements tend to be per truck. If your full-time job is your first food truck, going over 30 days of bureaucracy in order to add a second can serve as an insurmountable opportunity cost, atop the cost of the fees themselves. Such restrictions are exactly the sort of regressive regulations that then-Cato Vice President Brink Lindsay called low-hanging fruit guarded by dragons.
They stifle growth by throwing up barriers to competition and creating artificial scarcity in land and labor, which redistribute income up the scale. Quote, whether you want to be in and haven't been able to, or if you're in and want to grow, we want it to be easier for you, not harder, says Colley. With this study, the Chamber of Commerce hopes to help food truck owners advocate for themselves, enabling them to come to their local governments, not simply with complaints, but with examples of how other jurisdictions have successfully lessened the load. It is in the interest of all cities to foster businesses and to develop thriving food scenes that draw in visitors. There's something quintessentially American about the way food trucks rose up and presented a challenge to local restaurants by providing what is often a better product at a lower price. They follow in the footsteps of the chili queens of of turn-of-the-century Texas, small business owners who sold food from mini restaurants in town plazas and who were subsequently pushed out by regulations. Food trucks are by no means the only area of the economy affected by occupational licensing, zoning, and barriers to entry. But there is something universal about food that makes it much more relatable. Rather than attempt to contain those who are pushing the boundaries, we ought to celebrate and encourage their dynamism. In the United States, we have dozens of organizations focused on girls and schools. What if we're getting it wrong? And today's schools aren't really working for boys, not girls. Some boys have been characterized as disorganized, restless, noisy, and unmanageable. Sound like anyone you know? Michael Thompson, a professor focusing on minorities, writes, Girl behavior is the golden standard in schools. Boys are treated like defective girls. Boys have, on average, lower grades, they earn less honors, and far less are college-bound. Here are four points that schools are failing our boys. Number one, boy-friendly reading. A study in the United Kingdom found that girls prefer fiction, magazines, and poetry, where boys like comics and non-fiction, such as the World Book of Records. By allowing boys to read the things that they like, we can build a generation of better readers and writers. Number two, male imagination is punished. Writing instructor Ralph Fletcher says that the confessional poet Personal narratives full of emotion and self-disclosure are taken too commonly as the standard. These are girly things. Boys are punished academically for action-based story. A third grader in California was punished and had a parent-teacher meeting occur due to a picture of a pirate fight he drew. If boys are constantly subject to disapproval for their interests, it will breed overall disinterest in school. 3. Zero-tolerance policies. Boys are five times as likely to be suspended in preschool. 70% of suspensions are boys in K-12. I'm talking about incidents like Josh Welch, who was seven years old. He was sent home for nibbling a Pop-Tart into a gun. Number four, recess. According to Science Daily, students have lost around 50% of unstructured playtime since the 1970s. Beloved games such as Tag, Red Rover, and Dodgeball have been banned because we think our kids are too soft. One popular classroom guide in America suggests that tug of war should be replaced with hug of peace. Boys and even girls need to work off their energy. Schools becoming feeling center, competition free, and sedentary with the one size fits all approach have led to negative trends in the education of our boys. The DCCC says that Democratic candidates should be open to working with Trump. Axios reports, quote, 
New internal polling conducted for the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, suggests that Democratic candidates running in swing districts, quote, must express a willingness to work with the president when his agenda might help the district. The survey also recommends that Democrats not appear out of sync with what people believe about the economy. Why it matters. President Trump's election unleashed the far left wing of the Democratic Party, but moderate Democrats are the party's likely path to the majority. This new polling warns Democrats away from campaigning specifically against Trump and instead towards embracing the improving economy with a message focused on the middle class. The key finding that the research group believes Democratic candidates should focus on are 56% of voters are confident about their economic future. Therefore, the group suggests Democrats' messaging shows they, quote, want an economy centered on the middle class and regular folks, while the Republicans' agenda favors powerful special interests at the expense of the middle class, end quote. Republicans don't get credit for the approving economy. 58% say the economy is improving due to long-term trends in the work of the American people, while 40% credit Trump and Republicans. Democratic candidates are encouraged not to talk about the improving economy as a great thing, but to shy away from it, describing it in negative terms that cause people to tune us out. Voters think the wealthy and big corporations benefit the most from the improving economy and the GOP tax law. 89% big corporations, 86% wealthy people, 82% CEOs, and 65% pharmaceutical companies. Democratic candidates are advised to focus on helping the middle class and explain the tax bills and equities in two main points. Long-term costs that require cuts to Social Security and Medicare with higher taxes for the middle class down the road and giveaways to the wealthy and to big corporations. Here's the big picture. Democratic candidates want to capture voters who might otherwise vote Republican. This research suggests that they should counter the Republican pro-growth business tax cuts message with a Democratic message that appeals to independent women and swing voters. This from the Toronto Star. Victoria. A Nova Scotia man banned from Victoria's stately Fairmont Express Hotel is welcome back after apologizing for an incident more than 17 years ago in which seagulls, hungry for pepperoni, trashed his room in a rock star frenzy. Nick Birchall of Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, says in a letter to the hotel he was young and immature in 2001 and unaware of the aggressive nature of West Coast seagulls, especially when tempted with a suitcase full of fresh pepperoni near in an open window. Quote, I remember walking down the long hall and opening the door to my room to find an entire flock of seagulls in my room, stated Birchall's letter. I didn't have time to count, but there must have been 40 of them, and they had been in my room eating pepperoni for a long time. He said he startled the gorging birds, which is when things really got out of control. They immediately started flying around and crashing into things as they desperately tried to leave the room through the small opening by which they had entered, said Birchall. The result was a tornado of seagull excrement, feathers, pepperoni chunks, and fairly large birds whipping around the room. Tracy Drake, the hotel's public relations director, said Monday there were thoughts that this was an April Fool's Day prank. But a check of the records and Birchall's appearance at the front desk last weekend confirmed the seagull story and the former guest's permanent ban. It is absolutely a true story, she says. Birchall was at Victoria for a conference and was booked to stay at the Empress back in 2001, said Drake. After the room fiasco, he was, room, he was moved to another room for the rest of his stay. The hotel followed up with his employer afterwards, saying he's not welcome back at the hotel due to the damage in the room, Drake said.
He's correct. The lamps were broken. The room was trashed. It's a really funny story to tell 17 years later. But I was sitting here thinking about the housekeeper and what her first reaction must have been when she opened that door. Birchall's letter states he stated he still remembers that dismayed look on the housekeeper's face when she walked into his room. I have matured, and I admit responsibility for my actions, the letter stated. I come to you, hat in hand, to apologize for the damage I had indirectly come to cause, and to ask you to reconsider my lifetime ban from the property. The letter he sent to the Empress and posted on Facebook explained how his plan to bring spicy Nova Scotia pepperoni to Victoria to share with friends stationed at the West Coast Naval Base went astray when he decided to cool the meat near the window because his room didn't have a fridge. Drake said the damage to his room was beyond description, but all is forgiven, and Birchall is back on the guest list. The seagulls and pepperoni flap isn't the old wild animals story to occur at the Empress. Almost two years ago, thieves stole an iconic Bengal tiger skin that was mounted on the wall of the hotel's Bengal lounge. The theft remains unsolved. In 1992, as well, a cougar was spotted on the hotel grounds, where it was later tranquilized in its underground parking lot. Bucharest, Romania, the Associated Press. Constantine Riliu learned in January that he was dead. After more than 20 years of working as a cook in Turkey, the 63-year-old returned home to Romania to discover that his wife had him officially registered as dead. He has since been living a legalistic nightmare of trying to prove to authorities that he is, in fact, alive. He faced a major setback Thursday when a court in the northeastern city of Vaslui refused to overturn his death certificate because his request was filed too late. The decision, the court said, is final. I am a living ghost, Riliu told the Associated Press in a phone interview from his home in Barlad northeastern Romania. I'm officially dead, although I'm alive, he said. I have no income, and because I'm listed as dead, I can't do anything. During the interview, Rilio was deeply emotional, starting off by saying, I think I'm going to cry, and going on to voice rage, and a desire for revenge against his wife, who now lives in Italy. I'm not sure whether I'm divorced or not, he said. I'm not sure whether she is married to someone else or not. Nobody will tell me. Riliu explained that he first went to work in Turkey in 1992 and returned in 1995 to the first big shock of his marriage, his wife's infidelity. In 1999, he decided to return to Turkey for good. The AP was not able to locate his wife to hear her side of the story. Last December, Turkish authorities detained him over expired papers and in January deported him to Romania. Upon landing at Bucharest Airport, he was informed by border officials that he had been officially declared dead and underwent six hours of questioning and tests. They measured the distance between his eyes to see if, if it corresponded to an old passport photograph. They asked him questions about his hometown, such as where the town hall was. They checked his fingerprints. They decided that it was me, he said. But authorities in Barlad were less convinced. He spent weeks trying to persuade them to issue him papers so that he officially existed, he said. When that failed, he asked them to overturn the ruling on his death certificate issued in 2016, which also ended in failure Thursday on procedural grounds. Riliu said he would like to file a fresh lawsuit, but has no money and suffers from diabetes, which makes everything more difficult. Banned for life from returning to Turkey, but he would like to write to Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan to appeal the decision. 
Thanks for joining us today. I hope to see you soon.